All right. What's up, guys? How are we doing? Good? It's a little low energy. Um, <laughs> man, there, there's a lot to be excited about. That's awesome. Like, God's gospel is moving forward. Um, and, man, we are so thankful for what God has done here. And, uh, man, this church is a result of people that were faithful to going and planting out of the church that I originally uh, used to be in, which was up at Bowling Green State University. And uh, you look at all of the fruit that has come here, all the people uh, that have had their lives changed through what God has been doing here. Uh, I'm really excited to think about, man, what, what could be the possibilities of what he might do out there at Buffalo. So it's exciting stuff. I hope that you guys uh, will do what Kyle was talking about, that you'll pray about how uh, you might be able to be involved in that, whether that's as part of the people that are going or as the people that are sending. Um, that actually sets up kind of well what I wanted to talk about tonight, even because I want to talk about uh, anticipation, right? This is a season that we have a lot of anticipation. I at least know for me as a person that loves being outdoors with the warm weather and stuff, spring is kind of a, a frustrating yet exciting time of the year, right? Like Wednesday was awesome, wasn't it? It was like 73 degrees, it was sunny, everybody was outside, and then now today it's cold again. Um, but man, th this time of year, you just start to get really excited about, oh yes, like I can't wait it until I see the sun on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can be outside, and it, it's fun too, living in a climate that has actual winter. At Bowling Green, it was even more so this way, because as soon as the weather turns nice in spring, like the entire campus is outside, uh, because people are so excited about what's coming. Uh, for me personally, I'm a baseball fan too, and so baseball starts this week, for those guys that didn't know. Yeah, Reds opening day is Thursday. It's exciting. Um, <clears throat> even if you don't care about those kind of things, you're coming down the home stretch in your classes at this point. I know it's not too far off until the semester will be done. Um, and then for me personally, even this time of year is especially full of anticipation because my baby could be due any day now. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, she, she could be born this week, maybe next week. So I don't know, this is actually the last time that you're going to hear me preach for a while, uh, maybe even for the rest of the school year, just because of that. Um, but we have at least made it through here. Cass hasn't gone into labor yet, so hopefully I won't have to run off the stage here in the middle of the sermon. Um, but, but as Daniel was saying, <clears throat> this is uh, the beginning of what we call Holy Week, and today is a holiday that we call Palm Sunday. <clears throat> And if you don't know what Palm Sunday is, he explained it a little bit. It's this uh, Sunday before Easter. And if you don't know why it's called that, we're going to read the text. So I'm sure you'll pick up on it uh, from there. Um, this is actually a really rich text. It shows us a lot about what people were thinking at the time, who they perceived Jesus to be, and uh, how they received him. And I think there's quite a bit that we can learn from it about who we should perceive Jesus to be and how we should receive him. Um, so with that said, let's pray, and then uh, we'll get going. God, I thank you that you are here with us tonight. God, I thank you that you always have been. God, that you are, are there's never a time that we can go back to that you weren't there, uh, that you are eternally existent, Lord, and that is there's so many things that come and go and change in this world. Uh, God, you remain constant. I thank you for that. God, I thank you that uh, you've brought us together tonight, that we get the opportunity to uh, 
just let your word impact us. God, I pray that you'd give us hearts to receive this message, that you'd give us uh, minds that are able to even focus in on what's being said here today. God, if there's um, distractions in this room or anything like that, I just pray that you would remove those and help us to uh, focus on you and worship you actually in this time that we give our attention to your word. And God, I ask that um, as we give our attention, that we would understand, that we would learn, and God, that we would apply, uh, that you would send us forth from here tonight as people that walk more closely with you, that know you better, and that live more in line with how you want us to live. Um, we love you, Lord. I pray that you'd capture our hearts more tonight, and just help us to be people that love you more when we leave than we did when we walked in. So we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so the primary text I'm going to preach from tonight comes from Matthew chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can go there, but I'm really going to be using material from all four Gospels to paint this picture of what we sometimes call the triumphal entry. Uh, but before we even get to that, I want to set the stage for you about kind of what it was like to be uh, living in or around Jerusalem at this time that Jesus was uh, coming in for the Passover holiday. So first off, Passover is a major Jewish holiday. It's actually going on right now. Uh, you know how Easter changes all the time, right? Like it's never like, oh, it's, all, it's always the first Sunday of April. That's not how it is. Sometimes it's early April, sometimes it's late April. The reason is because it goes off of a different calendar and it's related to whenever the Jewish Passover is taking place. So uh, Easter Sunday is always going to be at the end of that Passover holiday. Um, so you, you think about how everyone in our culture is excited around big holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving, right? Uh, there's always kind of a, just a general buzz in society around that time. Uh, well, the same kind of thing is going to be going on here with Passover, also because it involves traveling, right? It's always exciting when you get to see your grandma come in from Pittsburgh or whatever it may be. Um, well, that kind of same thing is happening here with uh, Passover. People are coming in from all over the place to go to Jerusalem, now, the holiday itself is a holiday that was uh, designed to help the people remember how God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, which is a massive part of the Israelites' history. A long, long time ago, way before uh, th this story that we'll be reading today, the Israelites were a people that were enslaved in Egypt. And God heard their cries as they needed to be delivered from their Egyptian oppressors, and he brought them miraculously out of slavery. And what he did is he sent these 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. God uh, had Moses go to Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt. He would continually tell him, let my people go. And Pharaoh had a hard heart. He would continually not uh, let the people go. And so what God would do is he'd send plague after plague after plague. And the 10th one was a particularly brutal one that finally got Pharaoh to relent. And uh, what he did is God actually struck down all of the firstborn males in the land of Egypt. Exodus 12, 12 says this. He says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So God is really showing his power in an incredible way here. He's been actually showing that through all of these plagues, how he is greater than these false gods that the Egyptians worship, and how he's going to stand up and fight for his people that are being oppressed. But this one is really, really going to get their attention. However, God made provision for the Israelites to be able to escape from this plague that was coming on the land of Egypt. 
And what he told them to do was to slaughter a lamb and that they were supposed to put its blood on their doorpost. We see here in Exodus 12, 13, he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is where we get the name Passover from that God would come through and strike down the firstborn of all the land of Egypt, but for those that had their blood, uh, the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, that God would pass over them. His wrath would pass over those houses as he moves on. <clears throat> now, uh, this is one of the most important holidays in all of the Jewish calendar. There were actually three major holidays that they were supposed to, tr- all the males were supposed to travel back to Jerusalem for, and this was one of them. Um, there is also a lot of symbolism that goes into the fact that Jesus is going to be crucified here during the Passover week, but we'll get to that later in the sermon. But this particular Passover was also going to be really, really exciting, not just because it was a big holiday in general, but this one in particular was super exciting. Why? Because there was this guy named Jesus that was going around doing all of these incredible things. About three years ago, he had started his public ministry. And up to this point, at this point, his reputation had really started to blossom. I mean, he had done so many amazing things that people had heard about. They'd heard stories about him walking on water and uh, healing the blind and and, uh, letting the lame walk and feeding 5,000 and all these kind of things. And just even as uh, we get closer, Jesus is starting to, to let his fame spread a little bit more. You'll notice sometimes in his early ministry, he would do a miracle and he'd say like, hey, don't, don't tell anybody about it. Now, people had a hard time obeying that. They would usually still go tell anyway. But um, his fame is really starting to spread in a super impressive way. You'll notice if you read the Gospels, just how big this fever pitch was getting of how, of how much buzz Jesus was getting around him. Um, everywhere he went, there were starting to be massive crowds. If you grew up in church, you may have sang a little song about a short man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Uh, well, that, that was close to this time of Passover, uh, that Jesus was passing through the city named Jericho, which isn't too far from Jerusalem, and the crowd was so huge that this guy named Zacchaeus that wanted to see him had to climb up in a tree just to get a glimpse of who Jesus was. When he left Jericho, on the way out, he heals two blind men as this massive crowd is following him. The Gospel of John tells us that it wasn't too long before Passover that Jesus did one of his most impressive miracles, which was actually raising a man from the dead. His friend Lazarus had had, uh, died. He had been dead in the tomb for four days, and Jesus raised him. And at this point, this started to get so much attention that it was really the straw that broke the camel's back in the sense of the Jewish leaders saying, we've got to stop this guy or else everybody is going to start following after him. And you can see this in John eleven forty five to 48, says this. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to Mary, uh, Mary was related to Lazarus, and saw that he had, what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we see here, these are the kind of the bigwigs in the land of Israel. They're the chief priests, the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders. And for whatever reason, they are upset about the fact that Jesus is going around doing these amazing things. Now, you might be sitting there asking, why in the world would someone be upset that a guy is 
healing the blind or raising the dead. I mean, feeding 5,000, that seems like awesome stuff. Why would someone be upset about that? Well, on a personal level, there was probably some jealousy that was going on there. And uh, these guys got in arguments a lot of the time with Jesus. But they actually state a direct reason here in this plan. And what they say that they're concerned about is the Romans coming away and taking, uh, taking away both their place and their nation. What does this mean? Well, the Romans were actually the people that were in control of the territory of Judea, which was where Jesus lived and did his ministry. But one of the things that the Romans did well is they would conquer all this land, but they, they would try to let the people govern themselves to some degree, okay? Yeah, there was still ultimately Roman authority over them, but the more you let the people keep their own customs and some form of their own government, the less likely they are to be rebelling against you. And so the, the Jews kind of were semi-autonomous. Yes, they were under the thumb of the Romans, but ultimately they still got to do a lot of their own things. They still got to have their own courts. They still got to have a lot of their own laws. They still got to make a lot of their own judgments. There was just certain things that they couldn't do on their own. And of course, they had to pay taxes to Rome. So these guys that are in the power positions as the Jews, the chief priests and, and the, the Pharisees who had that level of influence, didn't want to lose it. They say, hey, if this guy goes on, what's he going to do? He's going to disrupt things. And all of a sudden, he might start a rebellion, right? Because if all of these people start to uh, flock to Jesus, they might say, hey, we want to make this guy king, and we're going to start up a rebellion against the Romans. And if they do that, Rome is going to hit back hard. And they're going to come and take away our place and our nation. And all of these nice little perks that we have right now where they're kind of letting us do our own thing, they're going to take that stuff away. And so they say, well, we've got to get rid of him. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, that's a crazy fear. Why would you say that because this guy is getting popular, that all of a sudden they're going to make him a king and try to start a rebellion against Rome, right? Well, it's actually not that far-fetched of a fear. In fact, there was already a point earlier in Jesus' ministry that crowds wanted to make him king by force. And guess what? It was after he fed them. After Jesus fed the 5,000, I know people get excited about free food, they... they got so excited about this that John 6 says this, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So see, there actually is a large contingent of people that wants to try and force Jesus into being king. And this is something that the chief priests and the Pharisees are worried about. Now you'll notice, even in, in what they, why they wanted to make him king, he said, this truly is the prophet who is to come. They were expecting a king that was going to come and throw off the yoke of their Roman oppressors at some point. Now, if you've been with us over the course of this semester, we've talked a decent amount about this idea of the kingdom of God, right? This, this uh, realm where God is, is totally king. We've seen that it's already here, but it's not yet fully here, right? Jesus started to usher that in. And so uh, with that, his believers uh, started to have their citizenship transferred into his kingdom. They start to live more like his kingdom. We get his Holy Spirit. Some things start to be restored, but it's not yet fully here. And there's still a lot of rebellion against God in this world. But here we are, we're, we're looking to say, hey, we want this kingdom of God to come. And the prophets have talked a lot about this. They're expecting a king that's going to come and bring in this time of great peace, prosperity, and power to the Israelites. And uh, I, I could give you a million scriptures to show this. Here's just one that you might be familiar with from Isaiah chapter 9. It says, 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. All right, now you've probably heard that passage read at Christmas. We read at Christmas all the time, right? But what, is, what it's talking about is, hey, there's this child that's going to come. Someone's going to be born to us. And they are, look at this description. The, yeah, he's going to be called all these wonderful names, eternal father, prince of peace. But it says there will be no end to the increase of his government and that he's going to sit on the throne of David. Okay? They are expecting a king. David was the greatest king of Israel. It was his line that was going to have all the, the, further, the future kings. Jesus came from that line. And so a lot of the crowds are starting to look at this and say, yes, this is the guy. Now, despite all of the miracles that Jesus performed, and despite a lot of the people in the crowds getting very excited about who Jesus just might be, the Pharisees certainly did not see things the same way that the crowd did. I don't know if it was a lack of faith. I don't know if it was a jealousy thing. I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, they were not seeing this. And so in order to protect their status quo, they decided that Jesus needed to die. So picking back up on their conversation that we started in John 11, we read this right after they decide they needed to kill him. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Okay, so at this point, this is shortly after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. We're getting right up to that time of Passover. The Pharisees have, have hatched this plot of, yes, we're going to do this. We have to kill this guy or else Rome is going to come and kill all of us, essentially. So this is a supercharged powder keg type of situation that we are walking into on Palm Sunday. I just want you to grasp the tension and the energy that would be there in this place. You have the general buzz of a big holiday and big crowds that are gathered for that. You have long anticipation for a coming Messiah that's been prophesied about hundreds of years ago, and you have this guy that seems to be checking all the boxes that just might be him. There's the excitement about Jesus and all of these amazing things that he was doing, things that nobody else was able to do. And we even have a murderous intrigue of the Jewish leaders deciding that they need to kill him. With this, we're ready to start taking in the scene of what Matthew describes. So in Matthew 21, starting at verse 1, we see here. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them 
and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowds spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Okay, so as I said, there's a lot of excitement that's in the air here. Jesus comes in, and he's riding on a donkey. And if we needed anything else to, to feed the fever pitch that we already had, the, his, his choice of mount was actually significant. Why? Because if we go back to the Jewish scriptures, look at what their king is supposed to be coming on. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right. This is written hundreds of years beforehand, Right? God had told his people that their king was going to be coming riding on a donkey. Here's this guy that's been doing all of these kind of miracles. He literally just raised the guy from the dead, and he's, he's riding in on this donkey, which is what Zechariah told us was going to happen. And this shows that he's humble, right? Conquering kings would come into cities on, on mighty horses, but Jesus instead comes in on a beast of burden, and a young one at that. Now, when you look at that Zechariah passage, it says that he is just and endowed with salvation. When they see that he's bringing salvation, they're probably thinking of something different than you and I think of as 21st century Christians. You see, we understand that the salvation that Jesus is bringing is salvation from our sins. The New Testament is very, very clear about this. And as a matter of fact, even when Mary was still pregnant, uh, there was an angel that came to Joseph, right? Because she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph was thinking, okay, this is weird. I should probably send her away. Um, and an angel came and warned him, no, no, like, it's okay. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Stick with her. And uh, the angel tells Joseph what Jesus is going to do. It says this in Matthew 1, 20 to 21. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so we know that Jesus all along, the salvation that he's coming with is a salvation from our sins. We understand that we are guilty before God because of our sins, and that we need to have them paid for, and that's exactly what he was coming to do. But what these people were probably thinking of in this crowd in Jerusalem, I don't think that most of them were thinking this way. I think most of them thought that the salvation that he was bringing was going to be salvation from the Romans. Salvation from these foreign powers that we can stop paying taxes to, that we don't have to worry about their authority coming and stopping us from doing anything that we want to do, that we would finally be elevated to this mighty position that, that the uh, prophets seemed to foretell. In all likelihood, that's the salvation that they're looking for. Now, you can't blame them for wanting this kind of thing to happen. Matter of fact, this time of peace and prosperity and power that was going to come, I mean, the prophets have told about it. Zechariah 9.10, the very next verse, actually, after the one I quoted about the donkey, says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. Right? So here he is. He's riding in on a donkey. And what's he bring? He brings peace. And, and as he brings peace, how does that peace come? That he's the one that's ruling over the entire world. Right? From the river to the very ends of the earth. And so I can't blame them for thinking that this was their political king that was coming in. So, most of them likely would have thought that he was going to kick out the Romans and establish his perfect rule with Jerusalem at the center of his kingdom. He's riding in on a donkey. He's fulfilling everything that they hoped he would fulfill at this point. And by the way, just as a sidetrack here, I love how the, the donkey was procured. They tell the disciples, hey, go off and uh, find this donkey, and if anyone asks you, just tell them the Lord needs it, right? Like, it kind of reminds me of Star Wars with Obi-Wan Kenobi and the droids. Like, these are not the droids you're looking for. Like, like it's just, I don't know, that, that just seems crazy to you. Can you imagine, like, just going and taking someone's car, and like, hey, what are you doing taking my car? The Lord has need of it, just, right? Like, but it, it's crazy, right? I, I love this. Mark actually gives us a little bit more detail about this encounter in his version. He says, um, some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave him permission. And so, so people even called out, like, hey, the Lord has need of it, and it worked. And what I, what I love about this is it just shows that God knows how to provide everything that he needs to accomplish his mission. Um, we've talked about that actually a lot this year, this idea that God is our provider. We did a whole series on that last semester. And uh, even here, they needed a donkey, and we see that God had done something to prepare the hearts of these people. It wasn't like the donkey had to be snuck away at night, but, but what, somehow God had prepared their hearts to be ready to just give up the donkey to these strangers that said the Lord had need of it. So I just think that's pretty cool. With this freshly procured donkey, Jesus is riding into the town, excitement sky high, and people are throwing their coats on the ground. They're going up, they're cutting down palm branches and laying them out. This is the ancient version of rolling out the red carpet, okay? This is the best they could do. They didn't have any red carpet available for them. So this is the next best thing. Get the coats down, get the palm branches down. This is something that you would only do for somebody that you wanted to show the utmost respect to. And what they were shouting was also loaded with meaning, Right? What they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means save. So literally what they're calling out is save to the son of David. Save in the highest. Now over time, this word had started to um, take on a little bit more meaning to where it had just kind of become an expression of blessing. But the significance shouldn't be lost that they're shouting this as well, because remember what the Zechariah passage said, that they all knew that this king riding on the donkey would come endowed with salvation. And so they're shouting this, this word of save to him. And also look at the title that they're using. They call him the son of David, right? This is also a title that's loaded with meaning. Now, I know as Americans, we don't really care about royalty. I, know I don't care about royalty or lines or anything like that. Um, we don't have monarchs here. But uh, biblically, this was actually very, very important because, as I said earlier, David was the greatest king of Israel. But it wasn't just like, oh, it's nice that he's in that line so he'll be a good king too. It was something more than that. God made a covenant with David promising him that the throne of the kings of Israel would always stay in his family. And so if Israel was going to have another king, it was going to have to, the guy was going to have to come from the line of David. And so the fact that they're actually identifying him with this line and what they're shouting, once again, shows that they're recognizing him as their coming king. 
Now, all this is great. It's encouraging that they're praising Jesus in this way. And uh, in fact, Jesus seems to appreciate it. The Pharisees certainly don't. They try to stop it. Luke uh, accounts, he says this in Luke 19. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. This praise needed to happen. Jesus was indeed their king that was coming in. He was the king that was prophesied about. However, there was something else that needed to happen before this great, peaceful, prosperous time would be ushered in. You see, Jesus knew what this was, but it seems like it wasn't on the minds of the crowd. He'd actually already told his disciples about this. In the midst of the the excitement, the hope that was in the air, though, I doubt that anybody was thinking about it. But Jesus had been very clear prior to this even. In Matthew 16, he said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that's where we are, and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He told his disciples straight up, guys, this is what's got to happen. And you know what? You might know that Peter one time got rebuked and called Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. It was after this. When Jesus said this, Peter was having none of that. He's like, no, Jesus, like, that, that can't happen. I'm not going to let that happen. He says, get behind me, Satan. You see, they, they want Jesus to just come and go straight into being the king that's going to bring in this time of, of great prosperity and power, but nobody wanted to deal with the fact that he had to be the suffering servant first. Jesus knew this, and he told them time and time again, Even earlier, Matthew 20, verse 28, he said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, it was right that the the scriptures did prophesy Jesus as being their king. They're spot on with that. But guess what? It also spoke of him being a servant that would suffer and die for the sins of the people. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All right. Do you guys know when that was written? It's, that's not a New Testament passage. Okay, that, that sounds like something that we would sing like in a song here at church, right? Like looking back on the crucifixion, knowing that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and that our sin fell upon him. We talk about that all the time here. I teach that all the time here. But you know what? This was written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. Okay? This is prophesied. They're, they're telling you, yeah, there's a king that's coming, but guess what? This is also coming. And Jesus understood that this part had to happen before the king part was going to happen. And so as amazing as this uh, Palm Sunday scene was, it really didn't last for very long. Just a few days later, the crowds uh, would be shouting, but this time instead of shouting Hosanna, they're going to be shouting, crucify him. And what was once a joyous scene by Friday would become a very, very ugly one. But all of this was in God's plan. The prophet Isaiah foretold it long ago. You can go back to Genesis 3 and even see this hinted at. When God is talking to the serpent, 
Right when the first sin was committed, Jesus told his disciples about it. He knew that this had to happen. And nothing was going to stop him from fulfilling this mission that he had. To go and be pierced for our transgressions. And so before he could take his rightful place as king, he had to die as the servant first. The king would die so that the people would be able to enter into his kingdom. And this is why we are healed by his wounds. You see what that passage was saying, that literally he was pierced for our transgressions. The iniquity of us all fell upon him when Jesus died on the cross. He was bearing the penalty that we deserve for sin because our God is a just God that punishes sin. And he promised us long ago even that the penalty for sin is death. But God in his mercy and his love for us said, you know what, I am righteous and your sin must be paid for, but it's either going to be you or me. And so he came and took on flesh and when he hung on the cross, he died in our place. That's what Isaiah is even talking about here. He spells it out clearly that he bore our sins. Our sins were put upon him so that we would not have to bear them ourselves. This had to happen. And this is the good news because if Jesus paid for our sins, that means that we don't have to. And guys, the invitation is open. Je Jesus came, he offers that, he says, hey, I'm willing to pay for your sins for you. I've done what is necessary for that, but you have to take his offer. You know, I told you at the beginning of this sermon that uh, it was no coincidence that Jesus was crucified on the Passover holiday during that time. There's a lot of symbolism that's in this. You know, just as the lamb was killed in place of the Israelite firstborn, right? Remember, God would go through and he would strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But what did Israel get to do? They got to kill a lamb instead and they would put that blood on their doorpost. And so Jesus was killed in our place. John the Baptist even identified him as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just as the lamb was put on the doorpost of the Israelites and God's wrath passed over them, so when we are covered in the blood of Jesus, God's wrath for sin passes over us. And we are freed from that. And just as this event of the Passover began Israel's exodus out of slavery and into the promised land that God would give them, so our being covered by the blood of the lamb marks our deliverance from slavery to sin and starts our journey towards freedom and God's eternal kingdom. Jesus is our true Passover lamb. And that's what we remember at this time. And so as I close, I want to ask you a few questions to consider about your life. And the first and most important is simply, are you covered in the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb? He died so that you can be forgiven. His blood was poured out so that yours doesn't have to be. Don't let this question go unanswered, guys. I know that you can grow up in church. Maybe you, maybe you grew up waving the palm branches around and that kind of thing. But it's like, man, th there's a difference between growing up in church. There's a difference between knowing about these things and actually knowing Jesus. And actually understanding that you are a sinner. And that, that your sin deserves God's wrath because he's just and he's going to do away with all that. But that he wants to forgive you. And that he's provided the lamb that's necessary to take that punishment for you. Are you covered in his blood? If you aren't sure, if you don't know the answer to this, uh, then I, there's going to be people in the back here that you can pray with. I think some might, might even be up front. I'll be back there. I'd love to talk with you about that, about w what it can look like to start to enter into this kind of relationship with Jesus. The second question I'd ask is, are you ready to give up your donkey when the Lord has need of it? Right? 
I love that, that those guys uh, were just like, hey, the Lord has need of it. Okay, whatever, have the donkey. Um, how open-handed they were with their possessions to realize that if God has need of something, I'm going to give it up to him. This might be your time. This might be your money. This might be your talent. I don't know. Maybe you have something that you're holding back right now that God says, hey, I want you to give this over to me to help in fulfilling this mission. The third question, how can you lay down your coat or find a palm branch to cut down? And in this, I mean, like, how can you give your humble service to the Lord? How can you do whatever your expression of praise or sacrifice can be to humble yourself and realize that he's king, right? It's a very humbling thing to take your own coat off and literally put it on the ground so that a donkey can walk over it. But this is what we do in humbling ourselves before Jesus and we realize that, hey, my life is not about me. So many of us waste our lives going through life thinking that the world is about us and that life is about us. And it's not. There's one king and his name is Jesus. And so may we be people that, that learn and become comfortable, not just comfortable, but, but, but uh, have the, the willingness and desire and excitement to lay down our coats, right? I love the people that they wanted to go extra step further. Maybe they didn't have a coat or they already laid theirs down and I'm going to go find a palm branch that I can cut down and put it down there just to show how worthy this king is. Our lives should communicate that, that kind of uh, servanthood and that kind of humility before our king. Another question is, what are you shouting, right? I, I told you this, this week there would be crowds that were shouting. There was one thing they were shouting on Sunday, and there was another thing that they were shouting on Friday, and they were two very, very different things. One of them was, Hosanna to the son of David, save to the king, right? That's what they're saying. And this is the one that recognized that Jesus is both savior and king. You shout save because you understand that you need a savior, and you call him son of David because you understand that he's actually king. This means that you admit your sin before him. And that you also say, God, I'm going to submit my life to being obedient to you because you're the actual ruler. You see, the second one, the crucify him, that's the call to get rid of the disruptor. Right? And that's exactly what the Pharisees wanted to do. They said, Jesus is a disruptor to my status quo. He makes my life uncomfortable. There's things that I want to hold on to. I like what I have in this world, and Jesus might take it from me. And if that's the case, then I'm going to yell crucify him because I would rather get rid of him than him get rid of the stuff that I want, the position that I have, the possessions that I have, whatever it may be. And so you have to ask, if you're not willing to let Jesus disrupt your life, are you actually closer to shouting crucify than you are to shouting Hosanna? Because Jesus will disrupt the status quo of your life. Another question, who are you telling about Jesus? And uh, after Jesus had entered here, and we see all this fanfare in verses 10 and 11, it said, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Who are you helping answer that question? Right? There's a lot of questions out there about who Jesus is. There's a lot of thoughts, a lot of theories. Man, most people in our culture, at least, they've heard the name Jesus, but man, there's a lot of different opinions about who he is. And, and if you are a Christian, then you have a privilege because you, you're in a different spot, not just to where you know about Jesus, but you know Jesus, right? The disciples, for example, would be able to answer that question much differently than a bystander in the crowd who may have heard about Jesus, might have heard about the things that he's done, but they hadn't walked with him. 
You see, if you're walking with Jesus, you can actually help people answer this question. And that you can answer it even better than it was answered here. Yes, Jesus was a prophet from Nazareth, but you can answer it even better. And showing this is the Savior of the world. This is God in the flesh. And you know, there's a lot of opportunities that you have around you every day to be able to tell people about who Jesus is. And this week especially, guys, this is this Holy Week. Uh, around holidays, big holidays, I mean, Easter, obviously, the massive Christian holiday, sometimes people are more willing to come to things like a church service or uh, the Good Friday service that we're going to be doing. Sometimes when I do evangelism on Good Friday, I love to ask the people, hey, do you know that today is a holiday? Some of them say yes, some of them say no. I'd say, it's Good Friday, do you know what it's about? And they say, oh yeah, that was like the day that Jesus was crucified, right? I say, yeah, do you know why it's called good? Like, huh, I've never really thought of that. Like, right, isn't that weird? Like the, the only perfect person that's ever lived, Jesus, like such an awesome, loving man that, that did so many wonderful things, was crucified on this day, and we call it Good Friday? What? But what does that do? That opens the door for me to be able to show us that, to show them that, hey, it's good because he had to be, what? Crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. And that's why we call it good, because this was necessary for our salvation. The last question I have for you, are you ready for his second coming? You see, Jesus' first coming was here, and the people recognized him on some level, at least a lot of the crowds did. There were plenty like the Pharisees that didn't get who he was, but, but plenty of them actually were shouting, and they, they were doing all sorts of wonderful things to suggest that they realized he was king. But if you read Luke's account, he has something very interesting in it. Uh, verses, in chapter 19, verses 41 to 44 say this, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Seems like a strange reason, doesn't it? You did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is foretelling the fact that, you know what the Pharisees were worried about? The Romans coming and taking away their place in their nation? That would happen. It would happen 40 years later in 70 AD. There was another guy that would, would try and lead a rebellion, and it failed miserably, and the Romans came and did exactly what the Pharisees were worried about. They leveled the place. And uh, it, it, it's, Jesus is saying, hey, this, yeah, this, this is actually going to happen. But he's saying, hey, all this wrath is going to come, this punishment is going to come. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And any observer would seem to think, but they did recognize, like, they were laying down the coats and they were waving the palm branches and stuff. Like, it seems like they, like they did. And yeah, there was a lot of fanfare, but they weren't really ready to receive Jesus for who he actually was. They wanted a political king. They wanted someone that did miracles, that entertained them, that made their lives better. But they didn't want the real Jesus who actually came and was rejected by most by the end of the week, who disrupted things. He went and cleansed out the temple. And by the end of the week, he was crucified. You see, there's a big difference between hype and devotion. They were full of hype, but ultimately they were lacking in devotion. 
They weren't ready for his coming. They missed who he was, and God allowed the city of Jerusalem to be destroyed later. You see, Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant. When he comes the second time, he will come as the rightful king that he is. And the scriptures foretell us of that too, that he's going to be coming on the clouds, and he's going to come with power, and he's going to come in judgment. And, and the one that was slain is going to come to purchase the ones that he was slain for. There's going to be judgment that's, that does away with all of the guilty, and he is going to establish his kingdom in fullness. The question for you is, will you be ready for that day? Or are you going to be caught not ready for this time of visitation when Jesus comes back the second time? Are you going to be found as one that's been cleansed from sin, by his blood, and are you going to be living as an obedient citizen of his kingdom? Or will you be found guilty in your sin and living in rebellion against the king? I pray, guys, that you will not miss the time of visitation and that those around you will not miss the time of visitation, that we would be people that go and spread this message of who our wonderful king is, our wonderful king that was humble and came riding on a donkey, and that showed his humility and fullness and dying on the cross for us. It doesn't get any more humble than that. But the reason we celebrate Easter is because he rose from the dead three days later. And he ascended into heaven and he will return. And when he returns, he's going to establish that rule that we're looking for. So let's pray. Um, God, we love you. You are our rightful king. We know that you are uh, our rightful king. And we just want to, to give you that praise. I, I thank you for your word and how rich and how powerful it is, God, and how you uh, minister to us through it. God, I, I think of the Old Testament prophecies that uh, foretold of the way that you were going to come and uh, even down to the details of what you were going to be riding on that explained the fact that, that you were going to have to suffer and die and that you would be pierced for our transgressions and that our iniquity would be put on you. And God, I thank you for the same clarity that we see that, that a day is coming where there's going to be no end to your government. There's going to be no end to your rule. And God, as we've looked over the course of this semester, even we see that you invite us into that kingdom. We thank you for that, Lord. That we don't have to be on the outside looking in. And God, if anyone is on the outside right now, I pray that you would bring them in. God, I pray that you would stir in anyone's heart right now that does not know you and that has not submitted to you as their Lord and Savior, that they would do that today. God, help us to be people that, that go forth and that spread the message about who you are and that help prepare people for the next time of your visitation. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.